Well, good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. My name is John Mark Redwine and it's so good to have you guys with us here today. Our, our staff is just getting back from a week at an, uh, our, our ARC conference, which is the network our church is a part of. It's called the Association of Related Churches. And we were able to just spend some time with our leadership and uh, around, around other churches that are just like ours, churches that are a little bit ahead of us, churches that are just getting started. And so we all feel really encouraged this week and we feel ready to go. And we got all kinds of new ideas and, and new energy. And so, man, uh, uh, we had a great time out there this week. I appreciate your prayers. Those of you who are praying for God to move in us and through us during this, during this week, he did. Um, and so we, we can't wait to kind of unfold that and think through that over the next coming days. Well, today uh, we are in our very last week of our series called The Road. Now, next week, I wanted to let you know we're starting a brand new series. It's just a two-week series called 90%. Here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about money. We're going to talk about money because everybody loves to talk about money at church. In fact, Everybody wakes up in the morning and they say, I don't know what the pastor's talking about today, but I sure hope it's money. <laughs> so we, we're going to talk about money. In fact, next week what I really want to do is we, we talk about this idea. We, we have this principle that we follow in the church. And if you've ever been uh, associated with Christianity, you've heard of the tithe before. That's that 10% that we give back to God. What I want to do in this series is it's called 90%. And so what I want to talk about next week as we get this series kicked off is what we're supposed to do with that 90. How we're supposed to manage that 90% that God asks us to keep. So we'll be talking just through some real simple, practical, biblical principles for how to manage our finances. I think that's something uh, that we all could talk about, that, that we could all learn from in, in God's Word, and so I'm excited about that. I'd invite you to come back next week to be a part of that. Well, today as we finish up this series, we, we've been on a bit of a journey with the road. We wanted to take some time to talk about what, what we're supposed to really do, what it really means for us, what it looks like for us to enter into a relationship with Jesus. And what are some of those real basic principles that we want to live by and that we want to learn as we start that relationship brand new? Maybe for you, Easter Sunday was your moment. Eleven people at the Gathering Church came into a relationship with Jesus Christ on Easter. Isn't that something to celebrate, you guys? Come on. Makes me excited. I still, can't, I still get jittery just thinking about it. And so maybe you're one of those folks and you come into this relationship with Jesus and, and now you're just kind of asking, what's next? What's my next step? And so since next steps are so important to us here at the gathering, we've been talking about what those steps are. On, on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, we talked about what, what it really means for us to uh, uh, receive and live in the forgiveness that comes with Friday. We talked about how the crucifixion is this complete event, that we were completely, totally forgiven on Friday, but that we don't just have to stop there, that we don't get to just be forgiven and then still live in the ruins of our mistakes, that we get to move forward with resurrection power that comes on Sunday. And then after that, we talked a little bit about Peter, and we talked about his life, and, and, and we studied kind of what are some next steps that we could learn so far as spiritual disciplines and how to engage in community. And then last week we took a look at the prophet Isaiah and we talked about what it really means to encounter God because once you receive that forgiveness and the Holy Spirit becomes a part of your life and then you start to practice spiritual disciplines and become a part of community, the next step 
is to ask, how am I supposed to encounter God? What does it mean or what does it look like for me to enter into an experience with God? This week, I want to finish by looking at one more giant from the Bible. The idea here is, is that there's these characters in the Bible that seem a little bit larger than life to us. We read about them, and it's almost like they're out of touch. They're out of reach. Their culture is so different from ours that it's hard to understand. Or, or they do such big things that they feel more like comic book characters than they feel like actual people. And, and I just got to stop right here and acknowledge that this time next week I'll be completely changed man because Infinity War comes out on Thursday. Amen? And I got my tickets for the first showing, and I just, I got to tell you, I, I'm real worried. Captain America's a real close person in my life, and I'm real worried about his, his health and well-being, and so y'all be thinking about me on Thursday night and, you know, how, how I handle that whole situation. And so sometimes we think about these characters in the Bible as, as comic book characters, and they feel out of touch, and they feel out of reach, but the reality is... They're people just like you and me, and I believe that one of the best ways we can figure out how to live this life in pursuit of an, a relationship with God is to study how those have done it before us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. See, I believe that this... This passage is so encouraging because it tells us that these, these folks in the Bible, these characters in the Bible, they're not characters super far away. In fact, they're still here cheering us on. They're in the stands as we move down this road of life, as we, as we run this race that God's given us. They're the ones saying, you got this, you can do this. Look at how I did it and just try to not make the same mistakes that I made. And so what we've been doing is kind of looking at some of these folks in the Bible and imagining what it would be like if they could just step out of the stands for a moment and encourage us and give us some, some counsel and some wisdom on what it looks like to move forward. So today, as we wrap this whole series up, I want to talk about one of the things that I get, I get asked the most often. And one of the things that I feel like in the Christian life as we enter into a relationship with Jesus is one of the struggles that many of us have to understand early on. And that, that is, what do we do in the waiting seasons? What do we do in the waiting seasons? And as I talk about that, I want to talk about Elisha this morning. Elisha. Now, I don't want to talk about Elijah. Now, there's two guys with very similar names that knew each other very well. It's very confusing. Elijah is the more well-known prophet. In fact, Elijah is one of the most well-known prophets in all of Israel's history. He was a very important prophet. He had 14 recorded miracles, and they were all pretty amazing. In fact, one time, this was the same prophet that would challenge kings and gods, little g gods. This same prophet once went up on a mountain and had this, had this uh, god off, basically, against a bunch of priests. And he said, you know what, how about you guys make your God call down fire from heaven, and I'll give you a little bit ahead of, a little, a little bit of, a, ahead of time, and I'll just go ahead and handicap myself, because I'll get my altar all drenched up in water, and it's going to be soaking wet, and we'll just see whose who's sacrifice gets burned up first. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and God blesses it, and he blows this, this whole altar just explodes like it's something from a Michael Bay movie, even though it was soaking wet. And those other guys are real disappointed about the whole thing. And then it says Elijah just kind of smoked all of them. And so it's a great story. He's an incredible prophet. Elijah actually never tasted death. 
He's one of only two people that the Bible says, instead of dying, God just took them to heaven. Wouldn't you like to go that way? In fact, in Elijah's case, it says a chariot swooped down, and he just jumped on this awesome chariot, and he just went away into heaven while chariots of fire was playing in the background. It was this awesome moment. And Elijah was one of two people present with Jesus at a moment called the transfiguration. Jesus is having counsel with these biblical heroes, and one of them is Moses, who most of us have heard of because of the Prince of Egypt cartoon. And then the the other one is Elijah, this prophet who never tasted death, this great man. Many people even believe that Elijah is the prophet that Revelation speaks of, these two prophets that will come right at the end times to warn us that it's coming. And Many people, many scholars believe that Elijah is one of those prophets, that he's coming back one more time. So he's this amazing dude, but we're not going to talk about him today. (laughs) This isn't about Elijah. We're going to talk about Elisha. Now maybe you're wondering, Pastor, why did you tell us so much about Elijah if we're not going to talk about him? And if he was so great, why are we talking about this other guy? Well, because quite honestly, Elijah's not very relatable. His life wasn't very much like mine. But Elisha, on the other hand, I think Elisha is somebody that we can relate to. I think Elisha is somebody that that we can understand a little bit more. Now, that's not to say he didn't do great things. As a matter of fact, what I'm going to show you is that Elijah, Elisha, actually did 28 recorded miracles. 28 recorded miracles. In fact, the only person in the whole Bible who did more miracles that are recorded in Scripture than Elisha is Jesus. And so he's, he's, he's this amazing prophet as well. But his beginnings were a lot different. And they were a lot more understandable and relatable for you and I. So I want to talk about Elisha this morning. And here's what I think he would teach us if he could teach us anything as we start this relationship with Jesus. I think he would want us to know this. That we need to give our best where God puts us. Give your best where God puts you. Elisha spent most of his life as a farmer. Most of his life he lived in this ordinary monotony, always just kind of wondering if there was more. Always kind of feeling like there was more. Wondering what would come next. Wondering if he would ever find meaning or if he would ever find purpose. And when Elijah first meets Elisha, He's just plowing a field, and that's where he had spent his whole life so far, staring at the backside of an ox. In fact, that was, that was where it literally describes their first meeting, is Elisha is staring at a backside of an ox. Do you ever feel like you've just been staring at the backside of an ox, wondering when life is going to get a little bit more exciting? Wondering if God has a little bit more for you, and you feel like you've got these dreams in your heart, and you feel like God's going to do something great? For you, but right now, all you've got to stare at is the backside of an ox. Not a very attractive sight, not very glamorous, but that's where Elijah first meets Elisha. And that's where some of us are today. Many of us don't see anything for our lives but where we are right now. It's hard to see around the backside of an ox. It's a very large animal, it has an, exp- an impressively large posterior. And a lot of times when we're in that position, it's hard to imagine what could be on the other side of it. We feel like there's more for us, but all we can really focus on and all that we can see and all we can see in the foreseeable future is this place that we're at right now, serving somebody else's vision, 
doing something that maybe we marginally enjoy or maybe that we don't even like doing at all and wondering if anything could ever really come of it. And maybe you, you hear all this talk around here at the gathering about purpose and about making a difference, but maybe your primary thought when we say that is, how can I make a difference where I'm at? How can I make a difference in the position that I'm in? And I think this is what Elisha would say to you. You have got to give your best wherever God puts you. Do it with excellence. Because what you do today is going to determine if you are ready for tomorrow. What we do today is going to determine if we're ready for tomorrow. So I've got, I, I've got, a, I've got a, this is going to come as a surprise if you've been here before, but I've got a list for you this morning. And I want to I talk about uh, just three different things that I think Elisha would teach us about giving our best where we're at right now. So first is this, give your best in obscurity and God will reward it. Give your best in obscurity and God will reward it. First Kings 19, 19, Elijah encounters Elisha for the first time. And Elisha has waited his whole life for this. See, he would have known about Elijah. Elijah was famous. I mean, we talked about how amazing he was. Everybody knew about him. And Elisha had this notion inside of him that he was supposed to do something similar, that he was supposed to be a part of something big. And his whole life, he'd waited for this moment just to encounter this prophet. And there he is one day just looking at the backside of an ox, and this prophet who he knows about is heard of and wants to be like comes along and changes everything for him. Look at the passage. It says this. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. And there were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. So this means that not only was Elisha a farmer, but he was a wealthy farmer. It was not common to have 12 teams of ox back then. What that meant was that you weren't just farming to feed yourself and your family. It meant that you were also farming for trade. Not many people had a trade in the ancient world. And so Elisha came from a wealthy family. He had position of wealth, but his current position was not just behind one ox, but behind 24 of them. It is not a great place to be. Even though he, he may have had some prominence in his community, he must have been one of the least in his family because he was the one charged with, to, with, with driving the 12th team of oxen. So there he is. And Elijah, it says, Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. That's a pretty gangster move right there, isn't it? That's, that's exactly what it was like when I asked Robbie to come start this church with us. He was just standing there, and I walked by, and I threw my jacket on him, and I just walked away. And he knew. He knew from that moment forward that we belonged together. <laughs> that, that, that was kind of a, a normal way uh, in that culture for, for a prophet or a priest or a rabbi to call somebody to come learn from them. So that was kind of a way they called disciples. But not just any disciple. That's how you would call your apprentice, somebody you wanted to take your mantle one day. And so that was a normal thing that they would do. And this was the moment Elisha had waited for his whole life. He's sitting there plowing the field, and all of a sudden Elijah says, I want you to follow me. I want you to be like me one day. I want you to come and do what I do. This was a big honor, and it was a big deal, and it was a life-altering call. But here's what you need to know, that at this moment, when Elisha receives this call to do something great, it would be 10 years later before he would take up the mantle as prophet. 
10 years, 10 year gap, 10 year gap between I'm going to do something great and actually doing it. And see, we live in a culture right now where we don't like this gap, where we feel like these things should be like this. We feel like we should say, I should do something great and that tomorrow we're doing something great. And we have a hard time understanding that gap. We have a hard time being in that gap and, and it makes us uncomfortable and it makes us unhappy and it makes us you know, all, all unsettled inside because our spirit is telling us there's more, but right now we're stuck in this gap. Elisha was called by God. He was meant for more. He felt this stirring his whole life that he would serve God in some bigger way, but right now here he was stuck in obscurity. But, but it was while he was living in that obscurity and being faithful that Elijah went looking for him. Because here's the thing. God is watching us in our season of obscurity. God is watching us when we think it doesn't matter. In this gap season, in this season where we feel like something should happen, but nothing is happening. God is watching what we do with it. He's watching how we handle it. He's seeing what we do with the little that we've got to find out how much he can trust us with later on. And he's using this season to prepare us for the next season. I was 22 years old um, when I was called by God into full-time ministry. It was a clear call. I received it. I felt it. I had never wanted to be a pastor or be working at a church before. It was just not my dream. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to be outside. I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. I just knew I didn't want to do this. But when I was 22 years old, my heart changed. And I felt like God said, this is what I've created you for. This is the plan I have for you. This is what you're going to do with your life. And I remember from that moment on, I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted, to, I wanted to work for a church. I wanted to be a part of connecting people with their purpose. That was my dream. Except here was the problem. At 22 years old, I still had three years remaining on my contract with the United States Coast Guard. I mean, I literally could not leave. They would have hunted me down and thrown me in jail for going AWOL. I don't know if that's what, I don't honestly know what happens when you go AWOL. It's a terrifying thought. I imagine that people in black suits show up at your house if you don't go to work when you're in the military. And the next thing you know, you're in a hole being tortured by electric cables. <laughs> I have a very active imagination. <laughs> so I, there I was. I was three years away from doing what I knew God had called me to do. And I just knew I was supposed to go there, but I was stranded here. And I was frustrated. And I was mad. And I actually spent an entire year just being mad at the entire United States Coast Guard. The whole thing, I was mad at it. I went to work grumpy every day. I, my favorite part of the day was coffee time. We got a coffee break at 10 a.m. How many of you think every workplace should institute that, amen? It's a good idea. At 10 a.m., coffee break for the crew. I couldn't wait. I went over to the coffee pot and I poured my coffee and I said, yeah, man, I hate this job. I hate everything about it, man. You know, they, they told me what to do yesterday. They're over there telling me what to do. Like, I don't know what to do, telling me what to do. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be doing something bigger. I'm supposed to be out there changing the world, and they've got me in here doing whatever it is the Coast Guard does. Nobody even really knows. <laughs> Spilling coffee everywhere. Just grumpy and angry and complaining about it. And how many of you know that when we feel like we're supposed to be somewhere else, it's really easy to be angry at the obscurity that we're stuck in right now? And we have this attitude problem. 
and we go to work every day like we're dragging a bunch of chains with us. And we get into work and we've got the worst attitude imaginable. And that was me. And I thought God wanted me to be a pastor somewhere. What kind of a pastor would I have been over there complaining about everything, making everybody else's day worse? About a year after that call, where I was just mad every day, just hated my job, was just mad about it, I realized that God was watching me in my obscurity. And I realized that what I do in the small things matters and that, and that it matters to God. And so I just said, you know what? I got two more years before I can do anything different, but I'm going to serve my calling where I'm at, right here, every day. And I changed. I woke up every day and went in with, with more joy in my heart. I just, I just gave it everything that I have. I decided to do everything with excellence, everything that I could. I, I, when nobody was watching, I decided to do it with excellence. I, I, I was a gunner's mate. My job was to keep the guns clean, to track the ammunition, and to teach people at the gun range. And let, let me tell you something. The guns were the cleanest in anywhere in our unit in my area of responsibility. When we would go to the range, all I had to do was get people qualified. And if they failed, it was kind of on them. If they failed, it was like, sorry about that, man. You're probably going to get fired. Have a great day. And then I would go. I'd get in my car and go. Instead of doing just the minimum, I made it my mission to make sure people would get qualified. I'd stay late at work and, and run them through over and over again. Just, just make them believe in themselves so that they could get the bullets on target. I just gave it everything I had. And here's what happened. After doing that for about a year, after about a year of it, the guys that I was working with started to look at me a little bit differently. And when their lives would start to crack or would start to hurt or would start to come apart, they weren't going to the chaplain for advice because they didn't know him. They were coming to me. And they would come to me and people would ask me about the change in me. They would ask me about the joy that I had. They would ask me about the work ethic they were seeing. And they would want information and I would get to tell them all about Jesus. And here's what I realized. That even in this obscurity, in this moment, in this season that I didn't want to be in, God was using me for my calling in a place that was not my calling. And I believe that's what he would do for you as well. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here. I just want you to see that what we do in the obscurity matters. And here's another thing. Number two is this. Give your best in the small things, and God's going to give you bigger things to do. Give your best in the small things, and God's going to give you bigger things to do. You need to know that God cares about the details. God cares about the details. You know, my dad tried to teach me this early in life, and it didn't take. He was meticulous about a lot of things, how clean his car was, how the garage was organized. I say was, he is. His, he's constantly washing his boat, constantly washing his cars. He, he knows he's itemized every single crumb that falls into the floorboards of his car. And his yard, oh, let me tell you about his yard. He cuts every blade of grass with a scissor to make sure that it's getting the attention it deserves. The man was out there this past weekend. I was home, and, he, and my, my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, was running around playing with him. And in between chasing my daughter, he was stopping to pull weeds out of the beds. He's meticulous. He's so meticulous about the, how straight the lines are when he cuts the grass. He never would let us cut it as kids. Now, that, that was great. Praise the Lord for that. In fact, we probably helped that. Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Dad. True story. I actually once, I, we had a riding lawnmower because we had a big yard. And one time I drove over, I, I, went, I got off the lawnmower. He wasn't looking. And I took the water meter cover and I set it like this. And then I drove over it and it destroyed his lawnmower. And I never had to cut the grass again. Amen. 
And you guys are thinking, this guy's my pastor. He's teaching me about doing things. My dad did everything with excellence. Didn't take. I had to learn it later in life. But what I learn now, I think about it, and I look at him, and I admire how detailed my dad is, and I'm trying to learn from it. Because as I get closer in my relationship with God, more and more I begin to believe that the small things matter to God. The details matter. Look what Elisha did next. In 1 Kings 19, 21, it says, So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire and to roast their flesh. And then he went with Elisha as his assistant. Elijah as his assistant. Elisha was so committed to following the call of God that he killed his backup plan. Did you know that the call of God doesn't need a backup plan? Did you know that when God calls you to do something big, you don't need to have an easy second option waiting in the wings? That if God's called you to it, he's going to provide for it. He's going to lead you through it. He's going to give you everything you need. And so you can go ahead and kill that backup plan. Did you know that? That's what I love about this moment with Elisha. I'm not going to focus on this. I want to focus on the last part of that verse. But I want us to take a second to realize that when we really believe in what God's called us to do, we can kill and eat the backup plan, and it will be delicious. Amen? Come on. Come on, somebody. That's good. I'll tell you what, that's good right there. Um, Elisha as his, Elijah as his assistant. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. In that moment, Elisha went from being a wealthy farmer to being the secretary of the prophet. In that moment, Elisha took all 12 of this, this herd, that teams of herds, so 24 head of oxen that he was in charge of, and he did away with all of it so that he could go be a secretary to a prophet, not even a secretary. It actually tells us, as we read throughout the book of Kings, we see several times where Elisha is washing the hands of Elijah. This was a job reserved for slaves. Elisha took the lowest position in the household after being the wealthiest farmer in his community because that's where he felt called to, and he did it well because how you do the small things matters to God. And I believe this principle is universal. I think if you want to be a leader, if you want God to do great things in your life, first take a look at the floorboards in your car. Because I think God's looking at that. Because why would God give you a mighty calling and heavy responsibility if you can't handle the floorboards in your car? Now, I'm just trying to make a point. Moms, don't come after me on this one, okay? I don't think God's not going to call you because you got crackers in your floorboards. Don't look at mine, okay? I'm just making a point. The small things matter to God. Luke 16, 10, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. See, Elisha was destined to do great things, but today he's just an assistant. He's the assistant. And he received this calling from Elijah, but for 10 years, he remained in obscurity, doing the small things, serving only as an assistant, as a servant to the man that he wanted to become. Ten years, he served the vision of somebody else. For ten years, he said, not yet, to the voice inside of him that said, do something big. For ten years, he made sure that even in the small things that he did, he did them exceptionally well. Because what we can do with the small things, we can do with the big things. And God is watching us in the obscurity. And so excellence matters every step of the way. Maybe right now you're in this season of obscurity. 
Maybe you feel a calling in your life, a dream or a future you want, or a future that you feel God wants for you, but it seems out of reach to you today. And honestly, you, can't, you, you just can't see how you're going to get from here to there because this gap seems too big and it seems like there's no way to cross it. Here's what I would tell you to do. Give it your best. Give it your best. Give that season of obscurity your best. Do things well, even in secret. Do things well that nobody will ever see. Give your best to the small things, and God will give you bigger things to do. If you give your best, even when nobody else is watching, you know that your father is watching how well you're managing everything in your care. And if you give your best in the small things, God will give you bigger things to do. You've got to learn from the trials you're going through and let them refine your character and keep giving it your best. Third thing is this. Give your best in the natural and let God show up in the supernatural. Give your best in the natural and God will show up in the supernatural. You see, Elisha, let's fast forward 10 years. He's been the assistant all this time, faithfully serving, giving it everything he has, just being there for whatever Elijah needed, serving this vision like there was nothing else for him, like it was the primary calling of his life, just giving himself to it, faithful, believing more was coming, but practicing patience in the meantime. And then one day, it's his turn. Elijah's about to be taken to heaven, and he looks at Elisha before he goes. 2 Kings 2, 9 and 10 tells the story. When they had crossed the river, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? He probably was thinking that Elisha would say, just pray for me, or, you know, how about our secret handshake one more time? And Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Wow, that's a big ask. What a bold move. This is the most prominent prophet in Israel's history. And Elisha said, let me get twice of what you got. Let me get double. I want double of the anointing that God placed on you. I want, I want on me. Increase the power of God in me. He says, You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it'll be yours. Otherwise, it will not. What I think is interesting about this story is Elisha's asking for the supernatural, something only God can do, a double portion of the spirit that was on Elijah. But Elisha gave him something very natural to do. He said, all you have to do is see me with your eyes. All you have to do is watch me when I go. And if you do you'll have what you asked for. All he had to do was ask, and God did the supernatural. Elijah did 14 miracles, and Elisha did 28. Double. God followed through. God followed through. He, 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 he was faithful in the obscurity. He did well with the small things. And then all he did, all he had to do to go into what was next was the natural. He just had to ask. He just had the opportunity, and he took it. He asked that God would do double through him, and God did it. 28 miracles. So let me ask you this. Have you stopped asking God to do big things? Have you stopped doing the natural thing, which is asking? Have you stopped doing something so simple as asking God to do the big, scary, supernatural thing? What was the last thing you asked God for? Because this is the same God that brings the dead back to life again. 
But for many of us, the last thing we got asked God for was to bless the sandwich we were about to eat. We get an audience with the creator of everything, and the only thing that we want to talk about is food. God knows. He's seen your Instagram. He knows all about the food that we're eating. I met one of my heroes one time, a pastor who's had incredible influence on my life, on our church, on a lot of other churches. He leads a church of about 40,000 people. And he's, he's a genius when it comes to systems and, and getting people connected and making people feel like they matter, even in a church of that size. And one day I, I was there to hear, I was at a conference to hear him speak, and I was sitting in the front row because I was ready. And I had my notepad and everything sitting next to me, and I pulled out my phone because it was a few minutes before it started and just started scrolling Instagram. And I'm just scrolling Instagram, and I'm in this auditorium. I'm early, so nobody else is in here yet. Somebody comes in and just sits right next to me, and I'm like, what a weirdo. This is a whole row here, man. You can't put, like, one seat between us. Sits right next to me, and I'm just looking at my phone. Well, I just decide to look up to see who it is, and boom, it's my hero. It's this pastor that has had so much influence in my life sitting right next to me. Now, here's what I should have done. I should have asked him a question about how to build a volunteer team or how to create a system that makes people feel value, or how to connect people with their purpose better, how to lead my staff in a way that's going to create an impact in their lives. I should have asked him any of these questions, but I just, I just looked at him. I said, hi. I said, hi. I'm John Mark. I'm from the Gathering Church. And he said, hi, I'm so-and-so from, from this church. You know? and I'm like, yeah, I know who you are. And then, um, <laughs> and, then I, and then it was my moment. He was just waiting, man. He, he literally came in there, saw me sitting there by myself, he said, this guy's here early. Let's see, what he's, let's see what he's got. Came and sat down next to me just so I could have a minute with him. What, this is how gracious this guy is. And he looks at me, and he's just waiting, you know, for me to ask my big question. And I look at him, and I'm just like, I noticed he was wearing these cool Nike um, dunks. And I was like, cool shoes, man. Cool shoes. That was it. That was it. I just talked to him about shoes. I could have learned how to be a better pastor. You guys would have all benefited from it. Instead, I just asked him about his shoes. I said, cool shoes, man. And that was it. And so many of us, we've got an audience with the creator. We've got the one who is able to do any big thing in your life. And the only thing we go to talk to him about is food or shoes. It's our moment. This is it. This is our time to dig deep with him. And instead, we don't have anything big to ask for. I would encourage you, if you're in the obscurity if you're being faithful, if you're giving it everything you've got every day, give your best wherever God puts you. Don't be afraid to ask him for more. Don't be afraid to ask him to deliver you to the next big thing. Don't be afraid to ask for that double portion. Don't be afraid to ask for something. I'm not talking about asking for a Ferrari and a bag full of money. I'm talking about asking God to make it possible for you to serve others in a bigger way. Because that's what he puts you on this earth for. And he loves prayers like this. John 14, 12 through 14, Jesus says, Whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Jesus said, you're going to do even greater things than me. Do you feel like God has called you to do even bigger things than Jesus? Because that's what Jesus said. He said, you will do even greater things than me, because I'm going to the Father and you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So what are we doing with that ability? What are we doing with that privilege? Let's ask for big things. Let's learn from Elisha, and let's ask for big things from God.
Elisha asked. It needed twice as many miracles. So dream big dreams for your life. Cherish the moments before you reach them. Ask God for them and give your best in everything from here to there. Now there's some final words of encouragement from Elisha before we go. In fact, what I want to do real quick before we go as Elisha pushes us out of this series is I want to look at my favorite miracle that he did and see what we can learn from it, okay? First thing that I think he would want us to, to leave with is this. We've got to learn how to cultivate the presence of God in our lives. That if you want God to step in and you want him to, to move in big ways and you want to take that next step into something big, learn to cultivate the presence of God in your life. New Christian, learn how to cultivate the presence of God in your life. Seasoned believer, learn how to cultivate the presence of God in your life. If I were to ask you how you bring yourself into the presence of God and you don't have an easy answer right off the top of your head, then you've still got some learning to do. Then we've still got some growing to do. We've still got to figure out what brings us into his presence. Let's look at the story of this miracle. It begins um, when the leaders of Israel and Judah are going to war and they get to the battlefield for this war and there's no water, no water anywhere, no streams, no rivers, they're, they're, they're dying of thirst. The animals are, are very thirsty. The people are very thirsty. And things are looking bad. And when things are looking really bad, like there's no way forward, one of the leaders says, is there no prophet of God here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? And I love that. I love that. Because right now, and, and this is just a sidebar, but right now, it might feel a little bit like, like the world's not listening to the church. Like the world doesn't, doesn't, like the church has fallen into obscurity, like the culture's moving on, like we've got nothing, nothing, like they, they don't, they, they make us feel like we don't have anything to say anymore, and, and they, that God is getting irrelevant, and all that, all that stuff, but you know what, when, when the water dries up, and when things really start to get bad, somebody's going to turn around and say, isn't there a prophet here somewhere that can tell us what God wants us to do next? Isn't there somebody, in fact, I think this is the best season that there ever has been to be a part of the church. I think churches are growing like never before because of the dry spell that we're finding in our world today. That's a sidebar. I'm going to get back into it. And so he says, isn't there anybody that can tell us what to do? And they run and they get Elisha. And, and then in 2 Kings 3.15, Elisha says this. He says, I'll fix it. Don't worry. But first, bring me a harpist. Bring me the harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. He said... I'll do this miracle, but first, can we get the keyboard player out here? I'm going to do this miracle for you, but can we get some pre-ano going in the background, if you don't mind? Can we get that Spotify worship playlist playing real quick? You see, Elisha knew how to cultivate the presence of God for him. And if you want to get closer to God in this season, you need to know what works for you. You need to know what cultivates his presence in your life. I'd encourage you to create a space for worship in your daily schedule. If you want God to use you for bigger things, start by spending more time in worship with him. It seems like it seems maybe a little bit too easy, but I'm telling you it's a no-brainer. You spend more time in worship with the king and watch him show up more and more in your life. I've got a routine and a place that I do my worship every day. A chair and a spot and a playlist. And that's my spot. When I get there, I can feel the presence of God easier than I can when I'm out of my element, when I'm in a different place, when I'm having to, when I'm having to, to, to do it somewhere else. And when I sit in that spot and those songs come on, I'm in the presence of the Lord. And I challenge you to do the same. 
And I believe the more you do that, the more you invite God into a special part of your day, the more he will show up in the ordinary parts. Acts 4.13 is talking about Peter and John and this, this amazing miracles and teachings that they're doing. And it says, when they saw they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. When you spend time with Jesus, when you get into the presence of the Father, people notice. And how you interact the rest of your day is transformed. It's changed by it. It's being in the presence of Jesus that leads you to greater things with him and through him. Second thing is this. At some point, you have to get up and do something. Learn how to pray. Learn how to worship. And then be ready to get up off your knees and get on your feet. At some point, you have to get up and do something. Uh, 2 Kings 3.16. He gets the harpist in. They need some water. He gets the harpist in. He feels the presence of God. He's praying. Feels the power of God on him. And then he says, this is what the Lord says. He says, this is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. He says, I will fill this valley with pools of water. Make this valley full of ditches. Do some work. Do some work. God says, I'm going to do a miracle here. He said, there'll be no rain. There'll be no flood. You won't see it coming. But these ditches will fill up with water. But first you're going to have to dig them. See, sometimes we got to dig a little bit. Sometimes when it feels like we, we want God to, to just show up in our lives, we want him to do the next big thing in our lives, All we, we, we say some prayers about it, we complain about it to our pastor or to our life group, and then we just don't understand why nothing's happening. But the problem is sometimes God wants you to get up and dig some ditches. Sometimes God's called you to do something, but it's not just going to happen. You're going to have to do some work to make it possible. Sometimes God's got a big dream for you, but in order for that dream to come to fruition in your life, you're going to have to get up and dig some ditches. Dig some ditches. In fact, um, the, the biblical scholars have looked at this miracle, and that what they realized is that they have these guys out in this big valley, and it's a well-known valley out in the Middle East, and, they, and there's no water sources anywhere. And the men would have been taking these short wells that they would dig in a battlefield, and these wells weren't filling with water. But what this miracle shows us is after they dig all these ditches, there's no rain, there's no flood, but water comes up from the ground. And about four and a half feet down into the ground in that valley, there's table, there's a groundwater system. And those guys were digging those wells probably just a little bit too shallow. They were probably just stopping right around three feet. They were just stopping a little bit shy, just a little bit short. All they had to do was dig a little deeper, and they would have hit that water. All they had to do was dig a little bit deeper, and they were going to find what they were looking for. You see, here's the thing. I think a lot of times, when we're in this season of obscurity, when we're in this waiting season, when we're in this season where we just don't feel like this is where God has, wants us for the rest of our lives, but we're not sure how to get to there, I think sometimes we do try to dig a little bit. And we dig a little bit, but the problem is we get discouraged when we don't see that water coming in and we stop. Or we get discouraged when we don't see a way forward into the next thing and we stop right there. And I believe that the thing that we would have to do is just dig a little bit deeper. It's just keep digging until something happens. See, I think it's good to pray about things and believe on faith. But I also think one of our core values at the gathering is active faith. Because we believe faith moves when we move. We believe that in order for God to do something in us, sometimes we've got to get up and help. We've got to dig some ditches. Dig some ditches. For this last one, 
Let me give you the verse first. And we'll close. 2 Kings 3, 17 through 18. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your animals would drink. And this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. And he will deliver Moab over to you. They were doing something crazy. They were doing something that didn't make sense. They cultivated the presence of God. They got up and did something. And then God showed up. And I love that verse that just says, it's an easy thing for him to do. Because sometimes what's impossible for us is easy for God. Sometimes we've got to do the natural. We've got to do the work. We've got to dig some ditches. But we also have to believe that the miracle, the thing that we're waiting for, it's easy for God. You know, obedience always precedes the miracle. You always have to do the crazy thing first. Dig the ditch in the middle of the desert when there's no river for it to flow into. But sometimes when we do that, when we move in the natural, we create room for God to move in the supernatural. And it was an easy thing for him to do. Here's what I think Elisha would leave you with here today. Don't base your life on the scene but the unseen. Don't base your life on the seen, but on the unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, here's the thing. When you're in this season of obscurity, this waiting season, when you feel like you're not sure how to move forward to the calling that God's got for you, when you're not sure how to get out of here, when it feels like it's going to last forever, when you're somebody's assistant, when you think they should be your assistant, when you're stuck somewhere and you just want to go somewhere else. We just get stuck on what's seen. We get stuck on what we can see, but here's what we, we only get a little piece at a time. God sees the whole picture. He can see the whole story from start to to finish. And even in this season, no matter how long it can be, whether it's a few months or 10 years, God knows that it is in this season that he's preparing you for what's next. That is in this season that he's crafting you, that he's shaping you, that he's molding you, that he's molding your family, that he's molding your talents, your abilities, your faithfulness, that he's testing you. He's testing how well you'll do with this little thing. All of it, all of it, for what he's going to do in the unseen. See, we can't see what he's doing behind the scenes, but he's always working. He's always moving. He's always weaving things together. And on the other side of that, there's a miracle awaiting. There's a miracle waiting for us. But we can't base our lives on what we see. We have to believe in the unseen. Because we, we aren't like the rest of the world. See, the rest of the world gets in those seasons and they get impatient and they create pain and bitterness or they try to make their way forward and they compromise and they take shortcuts and they have to focus only on what they can see because they don't believe there is anything else but we as followers of Jesus know that there's more we know that there is an unseen world bigger than this one that there is an unseen hand moving around us that there is an unseen future bigger and better than anything we could have ever imagined and so as followers of Jesus we just keep digging ditches and we believe he's going to fill them up. And when they don't fill up, we just dig a little deeper. And when it seems like we just keep digging 
and digging and nothing ever happens, we're faithful even with this small thing. We're faithful even in this hard thing. Even when nobody's looking, when, when these secret moments arise and everybody thinks everything's okay on the surface and we can get away with it, it doesn't matter. We just keep doing what we're called to do even with the small things. We just keep digging. Just keep digging. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, God, and, and what you've called us to do, God. I thank you for the way you move in the, in the obscurity, God, the way you move in this small things, Father God, the way that, that you prepare us, the way that you test us, the way that you watch us, Father. God, I ask that you'd find us faithful with the small things, that when it comes our time to carry the big things, that, Father, it would be a time when we are ready to when we've been faithful for long enough, when we've, when we've learned how to dig enough, when we've learned what to do, God, that, that would be the season you would trust us with something bigger. Not before, not after. God, I just ask that as we continue down this journey, down this road, learning what it looks like to live with you, that you'd bring the right people alongside us that would encourage us, that would pray for us, that would lead us, that we would remember that life happens best in community pray all these things in Jesus' name.